Hi, I'm Ted Yednock, and welcome to the second lecture on the discovery and development of Sabri. So multiple sclerosis is an autoimmune disease in which circulating immune cells infiltrate the brain and form uh, these zones of myelin destruction and neuronal loss. And what we discussed in the first lecture is that circulating immune cells express a receptor called alpha-4-beta-1 integrin that allows them to adhere to the blood vessel wall and migrate into the tissue. So we developed a drug called Tisabri, which recognizes alpha-4-beta-1 integrin, blocks the ability of cells to adhere to, to the blood vessel wall, and stops the, the um, ongoing inflammation. The Sabri proved to be highly effective in a number of clinical trials. So from the phase three studies, we learned that Tisabri will inhibit the development of new gadolinium, new gadolinium enhancing lesions by more than 90%. It reduces the risk of relapse by 68%. And importantly, um, it reduces the progression of disability by about 50% as well. So this is the timeline of development for Tisabri. Um, we started, we first recognized the potential of alpha-4 integrin as a target for multiple sclerosis in 1990. And after 15 years and 10 years of clinical experience and 4,000 patients, the drug was approved in 2004. So a few months after approval, everything changed for Tisabri. In February of 2005, two, th two patients in the MS trials were identified with progressive multifocal leukoencephalopathy, or PML. The FDA was notified immediately, um, and all natalizumab dosing was voluntarily suspended. This was a big issue because there were 3,000 patients who were involved in clinical trials, and also a number of patients were beginning to take the drug in the commercial setting. Um, at that point, we initiated a comprehensive safety evaluation, part of which then, in, in March of 2005, a third case was identified in a Crohn's patient who originally was thought to have had a, an astrocytoma, but in, instead it was PML. So the questions we had in, in 2005 were many. Um, how is natalizumab associated with PML? Who's at risk? Can the risk be mitigated? And how do we address the risk of death and disability um, in patients who have developed PML? So this was the um, safety evaluation. The primary objective was to determine if any patients had um, unrecognized PML or any other atypical infections. So remember, we had seen these two patients develop PML uh, only a week apart, and this is after being in the clinic for 10 years. And so the concern was that this was just the tip of the iceberg and that many patients would, um, could potentially um, have this infection. So out of 3,826 patients who were involved in the clinical trials, 91 of them, 91% of them voluntarily participated in this safety evaluation. This involved about 3,000 MRI scans, um, an analysis of almost 400 CSF samples, trying to determine the presence of JCV. JC virus is, is the virus that causes PML. And so looking for its DNA in the CSF was a way of determining if patients had PML. Um, all the data uh, went to the Independent Adjudication Committee, and they determined that there were no more additional cases of PML besides the three that had been previously identified. So we then submitted this information to the FDA, and they held an advisory committee meeting. So an advisory committee is uh, 12 independent experts from different fields. So there would be treating physicians, there would be medical ethicists, there would be people who were infectious disease experts, and also there was a patient who was um, a, a, a panelist who was a, an MS patient. Um, and so they heard the data, um, and usually these 
these meetings last for a day. But in this case, it was extended to two days because there were so many MS patients who wanted to come and testify. They had many messages that they wanted to deliver to the advisory committee, but by and large, the main message was, please let us make our own decision about what drugs we take. Uh, the, the idea was that the risk of developing multiple sclerosis was one in 1,000. The risk of developing PML at that time was also one in 1,000, and so they wanted to be able to make that choice. The advisory committee listened very closely, and they um, unanimously agreed to reintroduce natalizumab. However, it was reintroduced um, with a number of restrictions. That month, um, the two clinical trials, the two phase three clinical trials, were published back to back along with the uh, results of the safety evaluation in the New England Journal of Medicine. And so Tisabi was put back on the market, but it came with a, a big black box warning in its package insert. And basically, it says that um, Tisabri is associated with an increased risk of PML, which is an opportunistic viral infection in the brain that usually leads to death or severe disability. Um, also, risk factors associated with this it could involve prior exposure to immunosuppressants, so it was mandated that Tisabri be used in a monotherapy setting, so by itself. Furthermore, patients were to be monitored very closely, and Tisarabi was to be withheld at, at the, any idea or any indication that there was PML, which is particularly complicated in multiple sclerosis patients where you expect there to be neurological symptoms. And so distinguishing between MS and PML was one of the difficulties that was faced. Um, and also, most importantly, was that Tisarabi was only available through a highly restricted program. So each vial of Tisarabi was trapped to which patient received it. And patients were only allowed to receive Tisabri if they had a confirmed diagnosis of relapsing, remitting um, multiple sclerosis. So there was no off-label use of this drug, for example. So flash forward to 2013, and this is the experience that we've had with Tisabri in the marketplace. Overall, there's been 120,000 patients who have been exposed to Tisabri, 90,000 more than a year, all the way down to 31,000 for four years. And the overall incidence of PML is about 3.4 per 1,000 patients. Now, this is not distributed evenly throughout the, throughout the treatment period. It really depends upon the duration of treatment. So in the first year, in between infusions 1 and 12, um, almost no one gets PML. It's a very, very low risk uh, or very, very low incidence. However, in the second year, you begin to see PML come up, so 0.67 patients per 1,000 will develop PML. And then by the third year, it comes out to about two patients per 1,000, and this is, is maintained in subsequent years. Now, remember, this is a cumulative risk, however, so every year there's a risk of two in 1,000 of developing PML, and that's why the overall risk is 3.4. So we've learned that the risk of PML increases with um, longer duration of treatment. There's also approximately a two-fold increase in patients who have been exposed to prior immunosuppressant agents. And as I said, the overall risk is 3.4 for 1,000. So this is not good enough. Uh, patients having to face... Um, patients who take Tisabri usually have very highly active disease. And so they face the, um, the disability that will come with highly active disease or they'll, they'll look at taking Tisabri, which um, has a significant benefit. However, they also then face the risk of PML. And having to go to bed every night thinking about 
um, will I wake up with PML, is just not acceptable. So how can the risk of PML be mitigated? Historically, um, PML is very rare, and um, so there's a limited understanding. And in fact, before HIV, the only people who got um, PML were patients who were undergoing bone marrow transplant or some other transplant, so they were profoundly immunosuppressed. With um, HIV, however, it became much more common. So um, up to 50, per thou 50 patients per 1,000 um, with HIV or with AIDS would develop PML. Um, another issue with it is that there was no animal model, so it's very difficult to, to track the natural history of how the virus leads to, to the disease or how um, immunosuppression can affect that. Um, it's also not easy to sample the brain, so there, there are very few tissue banks that would allow you to examine the virus in brain tissue. Um, there's no commercially available assay for JCV. And as I mentioned before, it's really difficult to um, be able to monitor PML and understand, is it PML or is it MS? So Biogen and Elan undertook a number of initiatives to address this risk mitigation. First of all, in terms of prediction and prevention, um, we looked at viral factors that could be contributing to, uh, to um, turning an infection into, into PML, and this is something I'll talk about a bit later. We considered patient factors such as genetics or uh, immune status. It turns out it's very difficult to measure generic immune status in patients. Um, and then in terms of managing uh, patients who develop PML, it turns out with the HIV experience that the best way to manage PML is to reconstitute the immune system. So with the advent of highly active antiretroviral therapy, um, patients were able to reconstitute their immune system. HIV titers would go way down. And then if they survived PML, they could often then recover. Um, so the same is true with Tisabri. The idea is to take Tisabri off, um, to, to get Tisabri out of the bloodstream and allow the immune system to reconstitute. But then another issue emerges, and that's of iris. And this is immune reconstitution inflammatory syndrome, where once the immune system can get back into the brain, um, it, it recognizes the virus and it responds very strongly and actually causes a lot of CNS damage. And this is actually a time when a lot of patients um, die because of the, the strong um, reaction. So it's important to manage iris. So PML is caused by the JC virus. This is a polyomavirus or a DNA virus. Um, infection rates in the literature varied considerably all the way from 35% to 85% of the population. Um, and once individuals are infected with JCV, they remain infected for life. It can replicate in the kidney um, and is secreted in the urine. Um, it can also cycle between active replication and periods of quiescence. So just looking for the virus in the urine isn't a good enough way of determining if a patient really has been exposed. It's thought that JCV undergoes mutation when it's replicating, um, and so that PML is always associated with mutations in the viral DNA regulatory regions, and often, as I'll discuss, in the DP1 coat protein as well. So once the virus enters the brain, um, with immunosuppression, it can then, the infection can become meaningful and it can, um, it can take off and cause PML. Um, in the case of Tisabri, this is probably because Tisabri is inhibiting immune cell infiltration to, into the brain. So remember, Tisabri was designed to protect um, against the loss of myelin, which happens in autoimmunity. In this case, 
JC is infecting oligodendrocytes, which are the cells that make myelin. So the very cells that we're trying to protect with the sabri and multiple sclerosis are the ones that are vulnerable to infection with JC, and I, I don't think that this is a coincidence. So this is the characteristics of JCV in healthy adults. Um, as I mentioned, it um, can replicate in the kidney and is excreted in the urine. So about 20 to 30% of adults will have JCV in their urine at any time. Um, it's rarely found in the blood, so only 0.3 to 2% of adults. And even here, um, it's not persistent. It will go up and down. In the case of PML, about 50% of patients have virus in the blood. But here, it's always wild-type virus. There, there are never mutations that are found. In contrast, in looking at viral isolates from the brain in PML, they always contain mutations, particularly in the regulatory DNA regions of the virus. Um, importantly, though, the, the strain of virus in the brain is always the same as that that's found in the urine. Now, there are many strains of, of JC virus throughout the world, and they, they tend to have um, regional preferences. However, again, in the brain, it's always the same as in the urine, and this is true also in the blood. So in PML, JCV is not always found in there. It may come up with prolonged infection. But when it is found, again, it's always the same strain as found in the brain as in the urine. So these results suggest that the brain is not the primary site of infection for JCV. Um, it most likely is in the kidney or some other peripheral organ. And then with mutation, um, it somehow makes its way to the brain. Now, this is work done by Leonid Gorlick at um, Biogen. This is very nice work. He's looking at the BP1 coat protein um, and found that uh, in looking at brain isolates of JCV, about 80% of the viruses will contain a mutation in BP1. Um, BP1 is a sialic acid binding protein, and it, it um, allows viruses to infect cells by binding to sialic acid on the cell surface. Looking in urine, none of the isolates had uh, mutations in, in BP1. And all of these mutations were involved in the sialic acid binding site. So um, it actually changes the ability of cells to infect cells. It changes the ability of the virus to infect cells. Um, and therefore, is changing cellular tropism. This is an example of that. Um, so what Leonid was able to do was to take um, mutated VP1 protein that had been um, sequenced from viral isolates in the brain. And the, these proteins will self-assemble into uh, a viral-like particle. So it's a caspid, a capsid that looks, um, looks like the virus itself, but it has no DNA. Um, and then he was able to look at their ability to bind to the cell surface by fax. And what he found that with wild-type sequence, you can see binding to the cell surface of, of glial cells, which are from the brain, also binding to renal cells from the kidney and T cells. Um, however, looking at the viral isolate with the point mutation, it still binds normally to the glial cells, um, but does not bind to renal cells or T cells or red blood cells. So this is a big difference. Um, and this, this factors very heavily into hypothesis of what may be happening with PML infection. So the idea is that the virus, um, while it's replicating in the kidney, may mutate. Now, the mutations have no selective advantage in the kidney. So when you look in the urine, there are there's, um, they're, if they're there, they're at very low levels, and it's impossible to detect. Um, however, um, if, a, if a mutation does happen and it gets into the periphery, it no longer binds, if it no longer binds red blood cells, then it may have greater access to tissues. And this may be one way in which JCV is allowed to enter the brain. And once in the brain, 
Um, the virus can infect glial cells, and with immunosuppression or with decreased immunosurveillance, then the virus can take off and cause a full-blown infection. Okay, so PML is likely caused by an interplay between a number of different factors. If this square represents the total patient population, we already know that the duration of treatment is an important risk factor. So the longer you've been on the drug, the, the more at risk you are for developing PML. We also know that primary immunosuppression can play a role. Um, we suspect that other host factors can as well, such as uh, status of the immune system or genetics. But by and large, the, the most important factor is clearly the presence of JCV itself. If you don't have the JC virus, you cannot get PML. And so that's very important. We also know that viral mutations play a role in, in propagation of the disease. And so hopefully by combining, by a better understanding of these different individual risk factors, they could be combined into an algorithm to predict who is highest at risk for the development of PML. So in looking at the virus, um, looking at the presence of the virus, I've already mentioned that looking in the urine or the blood really is not very useful because even in patients with PML, it's often not found there. However, serum antibodies have a time-tested method for detecting infection. HIV is an, uh, a great example, for example. People go in to help look at HIV or antibody status to determine if they've been infected with HIV. So it's good at detecting long-standing or recent infections. It also is able to detect infections, whether or not they are re actively replicating or they're in quiescence. Unfortunately, there are no commercial, or there were none at the time, commercialized standard of, um, standardized assays available. Um, different labs have made their own assays, and they all um, basically were not standardized and gave very different results. So Biogen um, has a great department for developing assays, and they made um, uh, an ELISA that was very sensitive to detecting JCV. So it's pretty simple. You take viral-like particles um, that I discussed before, coat them on the bottom of, a, of an assay well, then you expose the well to serum isolated from patients, and if there are antibodies in the serum, they'll bind to the, to the viral-like particles in the well, and you can detect the patient's antibodies with an anti-human Ig reagent. They also then developed a secondary um, confirmation assay. In this assay, the patient serum is first incubated with virus in suspension. And the idea is to try to compete, specifically compete, any reactivity in the, then in the primary ELISA. And so in this case, if you end up with a, a lower level of reactivity, you know that the viral particles in suspension have competed um, antibodies and prevented their binding to JCV um, viral-like particles on the plate. However, if the signal is not changed, then that means that any binding that you're getting is not specific. And so it helps to determine the difference between being truly positive or, or negative. So when you apply the ELISA to a population, this is what you get. Not a surprise, you get a large spread. And, and what does this really mean? And how can you use this? Well, typically in assay development of this sort, you have a uh, controlled negative population. Um, in this case, though, who isn't infected with JCV? I mean, that really is the question in the first place. We don't know who does not carry the virus. So Biogen was very clever in their approach, and they took patients who had JCV in their urine. So by definition, these people are clearly infected with the virus, and so they could stand, they could serve as a positive control. And so when you look at the same data, separated according to patients who had JCV in the urine versus those um, that did not, you get a very clear separation of the populations. 
um, a large spread, but all um, positive with, with um, all could be considered positive um, with um, virus in the urine. And then here um, in, in viral negative patients, again, there's a big spread, and, and likely these are patients who have been, expect have been um, infected with the virus, whereas these um, patients down here have not. However, there's a lot in between. And so um, you can say that patients below this uh, lower cut point, which is determined by an algorithm, um, is, um, are negative. But the people who are here, right at, the, at this level, they're indeterminate. So what can you say about their antibody status? And this is where the two-step assay becomes um, of importance. So in the primary ELISA, 40% of patients scored as positive, 30% as negative, and 30% were in that white circle as indeterminate. Um, with a confirmation test, then, uh, it was found that 30 of these, these indeterminate people, about 50-50, um, confirmed as positive. In other words, they had specific antibodies against JCV in their blood, whereas 50% um, turned out as negative, meaning that the reactivity that was seen in the primary ELISA was nonspecific. So overall, it's about a 50-50 split um, in patients. Um, these are MS patients who had been on natalizumab, um, so it's an appropriate demographic to be studying. Um, about 50% were positive and 50% were negative. These results have held up um, over a number of different studies, um, both in the U.S. and um, in Europe. So again, about a 50% positive rate, somewhere between 50 and 60%. Or you can also look at the same group of patients and follow them over time. And what this graph shows is that being a natalizumab for zero uh, all the way up to four years, four or five years, um, does not increase the risk of being positive for the JC virus. So natalizumab is not causing JCV infection. It's just allowing the emergence of PML when the virus makes its way to the brain. So we have this assay that looks robust and reproducible, but how do we know that it's meaningful? If a patient has PML, um, in order for this assay to mean anything, it'd have to be that this patient, if they had been tested six months or two years before the onset of PML, it would be important that they were positive in this test. And so what um, we were able to do is identify 193 natalizumab patients um, who developed PML and had blood samples that were stored six months uh, to 15 years prior to the PML diagnosis. And of these 193 patients, 191 were positive for the virus um, in this period of time before six months. One patient was negative at nine months, but positive at six and a half months. And a second patient was negative at 15 months, but positive at two months. So it's great that these two patients ultimately were positive before the diagnosis of PML. In fact, it's amazing that we even have these blood samples. Um, but, it, it's, um, but it shows that there's a window of time presumably between infection and positivity, where patients are at risk. And so the best way of, and this is very much like HIV, where there's a, a very dangerous window between infection with HIV and showing positive on a test. So it, there's precedent for it, but in terms of um, using this as a, as a real good tool for risk stratification, it's important to have frequent testing somewhere between every three to six months. So as I said before, PML is caused by the interplay between a number of different factors. And with the, um, an assay to determine the presence of JCV, that's a great foundation for then building an algorithm to predict risk. And this is what we've come up with so far. So a patient's antibody status is determined. 
if they're positive uh, and have been on the drug and have had immunosuppressants and have been on the drug for more than two years, then the risk of developing PML is 11 per 1,000. Um, however, if a patient is negative, then regardless of how long they've been on the drug um, or prior immunosuppressants, the risk is 0.1 in 1,000. And even that 0.1, as I mentioned before, may be due to this window between infection and positivity. So what's next with this, Aubrey? Well, obviously, we want to continue to improve the JCV assay. Um, so further refinement in this, and for example, uh, it, it, it may be possible that patients who have very low titers but are positive um, could have a reduced risk until the virus levels change. And that's just an idea at this point. There's some preliminary data to support that, but that's something that is worth um, um, looking into further. Additional risk stratification tools, for example, if we could really understand who was immune compromised, um, that would be very, very helpful. So that's an ongoing area of interest. Um, and then also how to better manage PML once it occurs is also something that's very important. With respect to other indications, uh, these are other areas where Tisarbri could be a benefit, and this would be um, particularly true if we could better understand risk management. So Tisarbri, for example, has been approved in the United States for treatment of Crohn's disease. It isn't used very much for Crohn's because of the concern for PML and the fact that there are other drugs available for Crohn's. But as the better we understand risk management, the more of an option that that becomes. There are also clinical trials underway for secondary progressive MS, and um, we're also considering um, potential applications in stroke, acute cardiovascular indications, head trauma, and even epilepsy, as well as others. So what have I learned um, with the many years of experience with Tisabri? Uh, first of all, drug discovery is hard. Um, data really matters. I mean, it always matters in science, but when you're developing a drug, data really matters. And it has to be reproducible, it has to be robust, because it only gets more difficult to prove efficacy in the clinic as you, as you advance there. Um, also, biology matters. Throughout the entire um, uh, development of a drug, it's important to maintain a focus on biology so that when side effects or issues arise, um, the better you understand the mechanism of action, the better that you can address what's going on. A strong interface between R&D is critical. So when issues arise, uh, level heads, robust discussion, appropriate egos and motivations are, are critical. So always trying to remember that, you know, what is in the patient's best interest should be the focus of the conversation. Also, a connection with clinicians is, is just critical. Um, it, helps, it helps me, people like me who've spent their lives in the lab, to better understand patient needs. But an open, dynamic research interface with clinicians is also you're very useful both ways. I mean, we can, um, clinical samples from patients are so much more valuable than anything that we would ever learn in an animal. And likewise, data that we learn that we can share back with the physician is something that is of value to him as well. And then last of all, um, science really can move from the bench to the bedside. Um, this, as I mentioned in my, my first talk, was something that really struck me the first time that I saw meaningful patient data. And it's, it, it was never the same after that. And so it's important to remember this on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, because if it takes 15 years to develop a drug, um, you have to maintain focus on the fact that this is a possibility. So there are many people involved in a project like Tisabri. 
and there were many colleagues at Athena and Align. I'm just going to mention a few names. Larry Fritz, um, Allison Hume, who uh, led all of the clinical trials for the early stage development of Desabri. Lars Ekman, who helped keep level heads, as I mentioned before. And then, in particular, I advise and I want to um, thank Al Sandrock, who helped me with a, a number of the clinical slides, um, and team members there who I interfaced with most directly because they were involved in research was Susan Gelves and Lena Gorlick. Susan was important for making a strong interface with physicians, and Lena did all the viral work that I, I discussed. Also, there were many, many clinical colleagues who helped us think through PML and provide clinical samples. And then, as I, I did in the first talk, I, I want to really give thanks to the many patients who participated in these and other clinical studies. So thank you for your attention.